following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. I agree that there's something pretty special about the way God created man in His image and that we are not the pinnacle of God's great power and amazing grace. But instead, he gave to us this very special companion called a woman, and uh, they they somehow make life pretty special. Uh, there was a man who had been married to his wife for many, many years, and he happened to be in the hospital in a deep coma for a number of months. And when he finally came out of his coma... He looked up, and there was his wife of the many years faithfully sitting by his bed as she was all during the time when he was in his coma. So uh, he asked asked her to come and and get get a little closer, and uh, she came by with uh, tears in her eyes as he began to say, you know what, I've, I've got something to say to you, and I noticed as I thought through my life, here that when I, when I lost my job, when that company fired me, you were here with me by my side. And when my business failed, you were there. And when I got shot, you were by my side. We lost the house and you stayed right here. And when my health started failing, you were right by my side. You know what? What, dear? She asked gently, smiling as her heart began to fill with warmth. And her husband says, I I think you're bad luck. (laughs) So the humor of that gentleman at that moment probably caused her maybe to smack him a couple times, which he probably deserved. But there's there's something about having a very special woman by our side. And of all things, Christianity and the Scripture doesn't do anything less and elevate women to a very high level, even though historically women were treated with a great deal of disregard by very selfish, egotistical men who found themselves in positions of power. They shaped their culture to the point where women were treated poorly, but for some reason, as we look at the Scripture, if we are observant, we will notice that God doesn't do anything other than elevate women. In fact, when we come to the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark, this is one of those great themes that demonstrates itself here so powerfully. That is, God brings women to the point of high recognition and regard. So he says here in Mark chapter 16, beginning at verse 1, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought uh, brought spices so that they might anoint Jesus' body. When that particular occasion occurred and this episode happened, it wasn't that they were going to be doing anything about bringing Jesus Christ back to life. It was all for the purpose of keeping a decaying body from stinking so badly. But that was the culture of the day. One of the things that's really fascinating about this particular episode is that you see in this group of women the amazing dedication that they're going to go and honor the person of Jesus by making sure that they could do everything possible to make him presentable to anyone as they thought about their Lord and Savior having passed. 
But the subtlety of verse 1 still leaves us with a very interesting question, and that is not so much that God elevated the women to this particular juncture because they're doing something so selfless, even to the point of their own personal discomfort. But the question we should be asking ourselves is, where in the world is his, are his disciples? Why in the world aren't they honoring him? This is not just women's work. This is a matter of respect. Uh, I was uh, out hunting this uh, past several days, and uh, I was riding around the ranch with the, uh, the ranch boss, and we got into the woods, and we were having a great time visiting and talking about life, and all of a sudden he slams on his brakes. And the overwhelming sense was that we didn't run into a brick wall. We didn't run into a fallen tree. But what we ran into was the fragrance in the air, which was the stench of a dead pig. The, the stench of any rotting flesh in the woods is one of the worst things in the world, even though you've experienced it many times. And he crinkled up his face and said, well, there's a dead pig around here someplace. And it is such an awful, awful experience that the retching of your own body that you want to actually lose not only your last meal, but probably your last three meals. Just absolutely stinks. So he says, I think it's coming from that direction. Let's go the other way. That's your natural human tendency is to get away from the stench of rotting flesh. But these women went to what they knew would be the stench of rotting flesh because they loved Jesus. And the disciples, the men were absent. Now, from that standpoint of the silence, here we go on to verse 2, and it says, Very early on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, they've got a little bit of a problem, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Now, if you missed it, that the disciples weren't there on the way for this specific purpose, then you obviously can't miss it here in verse 3 that the men are absent when they were needed. It was the men who could have come and said, look, the women are going to be doing this. Let's go along and help them to roll away the stone so they can do this very respectful expression of adoration and love for Jesus. But the disciples were very clearly absent. So the rolling away the stone was there, and yet it seems like it's all subtle, nothing more than introduction. But really, the subtleness of the question that these women had with a predicament and a problem that they had no solution for tells us why the stone needed to be rolled away in the first place. It was so that people could come in. It wasn't so that Jesus could get out. It was so that people could look in or go in and realize that Jesus was not there. The rolling away of the stone was for our benefit, to prove that Jesus was not there. We, uh, we know that Jesus in his resurrected body is a totally different phenomenon. He didn't have to have a key. He didn't have to have a stone rolled away. He could pass through any of these physical barriers. So later on when the disciples, when their, their faith was really shadowed by their fear, Jesus Christ appeared to them even though they were in a room behind a locked door. The resurrected body has that capacity. So the resurrected Jesus did not have to have the stone rolled away to get out. It was rolled away so they could get in and see that Jesus 
was no longer there. Now, some of the amazing things about this particular episode, when the women are now confronted with the angel, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, which is what enabled them to enter the tomb, the stone was rolled away. So again, it emphasizes the reason why the stone had to be removed is for our benefit. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white, in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. For some reason, even though angels are nothing more than messengers, they are spirit beings at the service of the Almighty, they somehow always strike fear in the life of a human being. So don't be afraid. When you first see your first angel, you will be a little bit uncomfortable, and that simply means that you're human. And whenever God says in this word, don't be afraid, there's always a reason to be afraid. But it's his word that alleviates the reaction that we have as human beings that this is something that we can personally have comfort in, even though that God is giving to us something overwhelming. So we have this first sense here where the resurrected Jesus and the message that comes from him is comfort. And then we have a message. Once the comfort is given, then a spoken word can be received. Now we do this in seminary all the time. We hand the students our syllabus. They, they fall over when they realize how heavy it is. With all the assignments and the reading projects, we call this syllabus shock. And we tell our students, don't be afraid. So at that point, they have a choice. They can either believe their eyes and what they're reading as they look at all the assignments and realize that this is only one, probably a four or five courses they have, so they multiply the impact by four or five times. Or they can believe the professor who looks up there like he's a sadistic kind of person wanting to inflict pain on the life of people. And when the professor says, don't be afraid, you will do this. You will manage. We've never had a student die. Well, we did have three, but they really didn't count. We, we generally say no one's really died from this class. So we, we have a great time engaging students with regard to fear, but with the words that we give them for comfort. And that's exactly what is occurring here. Once we have the comfort given, we then can speak into their life about all the amazing things that will occur because of what uh, this particular course can give to them. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. And that's that great announcement. Once people are in the midst of fear, but they sense the authority who tells them to be comforted, they can make an announcement of words that people can receive and find tremendous strength. There's nothing more delightful for all of us who are going to be a part of a graduation ceremony in the next couple of weeks, when we have students who stand there robed in all their academic regalia, and we remind them, when you first came here, and you went through your first week of syllabus shock, you never, ever thought you were going to make it. When you looked at the cost and the expense of your seminary education, you could never figure out where in the world the money would come from. And now you are here. You've finished. You've done well. And God has left a track record with a wake of story after story, not just in the lives of your colleagues, but in your life, so that you would always believe that God would take care of you. 
You take the fear, you give the word of comfort by someone in authority, and you make a very powerful announcement when that application of truth is now real in their life. Something incredible about this statement here as we conclude the Gospel of Mark. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. I know it's in another gospel. It's not here in the gospel of Mark, but it's it's a special occasion when people look inside the empty tomb. And when Peter and John raced to the tomb, as recorded in another gospel, and those two look in and one of them rushes in, and it says they see the linen of Jesus Christ lying there, folded. They believed. Now, I know there's a lot of stories that go on and on and on about it's folded, so this is a sign that the host is going to return. I have, I have not been able to validate or verify that anywhere. Because one of the things I've always known about this scripture is that when it talks about the linen that wrapped up the life of Jesus, the body of Jesus Christ, and it was still lying there in its folded form, and the headpiece folded by itself. I've always understood that from the Jewish perspective. That when the Jews wrap up a body with strips of linen, they wrap up the, the limbs, the two legs, and the two arms separately. They wrap up the torso all the way up to the neck. Then they have a separate piece of linen. It's also torn into long strips, and they wrap the head last. And the wrapping of the head, they oftentimes refer to it as a folding of the strips of linen as they wrap the head. So you can imagine this form like a mummy lying there on the stone. Jesus Christ is resurrected. The body is no longer limited by the physical boundaries of this life as we know it because Christ's body would pass right through the strips of linen that wrapped up his limbs, his torso, and a separate piece that wrapped up his head. So can you imagine now the mummy with the body no longer there? It's not like paper mache, which now takes the form, but instead that form now collapses because there's no body in it to hold it. And if after the body is wrapped with the arms and legs and the torso separate from the linen that wrapped the head, when the body passes away, there's nothing to hold the, the separate wrapping around the head with the rest of the wrapping. So the wrapping of the head falls away by itself from the rest of the wrapping. You can look down the hole where the neck was and see that there's nothing in the wrapping for the body. You can look in the hole of that was the part that wrapped the head and there's no head in there. So when the scripture says that the headpiece, the head wrapping was folded or wrapped by itself because it fall away because there's no body in it to hold it together. That's what caused Peter and John to see and believe in the resurrection. Jesus Christ didn't wake up, sit up, and start unwrapping his head, fold that, all that linen neatly, and put it in a, in a pile by itself. He didn't do that. He just passed right through it. That's the resurrected body. That's probably the same thing that these women saw when they went in there and the angel said, see, he's not here. He's resurrected. He's raised. They saw the same thing. This amazing portion of scripture gives to us how the women responded in that they were the first ones that God gave the privilege of having this amazing experience of Jesus Christ 
raised from the dead. This amazing revelation and the tremendous promise that they would see Jesus Christ again. Now the scriptures tell us here in verse 8, a cause-effect relationship as a result of this phenomenal experience based upon the, the expectations of all these women. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, gentlemen, the women are revealed to us here from a human perspective of what they did not naturally do or instructed to do because they were afraid. And if we're honest with ourselves, many times we do not speak up for the resurrected Jesus Christ to the lives of other people because we are afraid. It was fun for me to be out on this hunting trip, and the ranch boss and I were just together, and it was one of those lone moments when we were just chatting, and we got to, to talking about life and just simply asking, are you a Christian? Sometimes I, I don't like beating around the bush. I just like to ask them because I know if I beat around the bush, maybe I'll get scared about even presenting the whole idea. So it was fun because he, he is a believer, and he was kind of feeling me out to find out if I was a believer. And so here we were, and someone had to broach that particular subject. And if it's joy that drives us to either discover a brother in Christ or to find someone that God has now given me the privilege to share the good news with, either one of those are great and joyful possibilities. Not the fear of being rejected, not the fear of being called a name, not the fear of being thought of as some kind of lunatic fringe. Well, that's what the women here at the resurrection, they have the privilege of teaching us this amazing stuff. The first eight verses of Mark 16 are absolutely stunning. Now we get to a rather interesting part, and that's the last 11 verses of Mark chapter 16 and verses 9 to 20. And there's a great debate, and I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but it's probably in your Bibles if you read this little note. A lot of the translations have an introduction parenthetical explanation like this here does in my Bible. The most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. Uh, so there's many people, there are many people in the world of scholarship and the scriptures that don't even address verses 9 through 20 and 16. They, it's not there. It's not reliable that that's part of actual inspired scripture. And yet it's here. Probably most of our translations we actually have it just with that parenthetical introduction. Well, they have a number of ways that they come to that particular conclusion, and this is how scholars think. They look here on this column here, and I put these down for your simple observation. They have things called external evidence and things called internal evidence. External are evidence issues of people who said something, ancient individuals, uh, early church fathers, uh, the discussion that was gone long before us, uh, we, long, long before we were ever born, and sometimes there's a, a little bit of a conflict. So when they look at all the ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, they say that two of our very best, most complete ones don't have this. But that's sort of tipping your hand when you, when you introduce it that way. If you say the most reliable early manuscripts don't have this, just because you make the statement that way, the most reliable early manuscripts don't have this. Obviously, then, it was an addition later on. On the other hand, you could say, but of the evidence that we have, there's maybe two or three that we consider very complete evidences of 
an ancient manuscript that has a whole Bible in it, and they don't have Mark 16, 9 through 20. But what in the world do we do when we look at all the evidences of these manuscripts and the vast majority of them have the presence of this particular ending? So sure, the oldest ones don't have it, but the majority of the ones that we do have from all over different parts of the Middle East, they have evidence of the last several verses of the Gospel of Mark. So I like to say to people that even though, yeah, there's two very, very, very deliberate and trustworthy manuscripts that don't have this there, look at all the other works that these monks and early scribes, look what they did. They all included it. They weren't dummies. They weren't stupid. We don't dismiss them out of hand by looking at two manuscripts and saying, we elevate those over the other 155. So there's still some honest debate that's there. Now, I will recognize that if uh, we could just read this in English, verses 1 through 8 and then verses 9 through 20, you will notice a very distinctive difference in the writing style. So I'm a professor at a seminary. When a student turns in a paper and I read it, and I'm just reading along with a really open, objective mind, and all of a sudden I get suspicious. Man, you know, I've talked to this student probably 30 times. Every time I talk to them, they never sound like this. Hmm. In fact, the language and the words that they use in this paper that they've turned in, that sounds like pretty sophisticated language. Hmm. I'll go on Google and I'll type in a phrase that they used in their paper. And all of a sudden, an entire paper comes up from somebody else in a different organization on this same topic. Then I'll be reading that on Google, and I'll look at the student's paper and say, man, this whole paragraph is taken right out of this other person's paper, and this other person lived 125 years ago. I think they probably wrote it before this student, who's still alive, looking for a grade in this class in seminary. So I'll make a note on the paper, and I'll say, I found this same paragraph written 125 years ago by this particular individual. said, if you're going to lift a particular item from somebody in ancient, ancient history, at least put quotations around it and identify the author. And even better, read their paragraph and then rewrite it in your own words. Now, if that happens four or five times in that paper, then I'll just flunk the person and give them an F and say, please come see me and we can discuss your grade. And I don't know how many times when I've done that and the student comes in, knocks on the door and the head is down, shoulders are bent forward and they, they realize they've been caught cheating. And I just have them sit down and I said, you didn't write this. No. But you try to take credit for it. Yes. Didn't you realize that I could tell the difference between what you do and what some ancient scholar with five PhDs would write 125 years ago? There's a difference. Especially when you use archaic old English in 2015. It just doesn't, doesn't match. Now, you guys are bright enough to do that and realize that if you read the first 15 chapters of the Gospel of Mark and then read the last 9 through 20 verses of 16 of Mark, you would realize, you know, there's a difference here. In fact, in 9 through 20 in Mark 16, Mark uses in this particular section 15 words that don't appear anywhere else in the first 15 chapters. It's vocabulary. But also it's really fascinating that every one of the highlighted points 
that's found in those last verses are found in Luke and John. Fascinating that if the person who ever wrote this last section were being accurate, at least they checked their historical facts. It probably wasn't Mark. It would be really weird for Mark suddenly to change his writing style, increase his vocabulary. But at least if we say it wasn't Mark, it was someone who knew biblical history because everything in verses 9 through 20 have a parallel passage that can be verified and validated in the other Gospels. So it seems to me that if it's true, even though it is probably not Mark, God is not so careless as to allow 11 verses just to find their way in inspired Scripture by mistake. So I'd like to look at this particular section of Scripture with respect to the realization that God is probably wanting us to pay attention to accurate history and paying attention to the resurrection history of Jesus Christ and the lives of people afterwards. So when we look at verses 9 through 14 of this rather interesting passage, we can at least see that there are, very, there are three very important features. Mary Magdalene was favored with the first visit. For some reason, God wanted women to be favored. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus in the Gospel of Luke have an appearance here. And what they did with regard to testifying of truth without faith was very important in the historical record of the resurrected Jesus. And then the 11. The 11 somehow recognized that they were being rebuked, not for their cowardice, not for their lack of courage, not for their lack of ingenuity, not for their lack of intimacy like the women, They were being criticized for just one thing and one thing only, and that is their lack of faith. Now, that's one of the amazing things to me about this section of the Gospel of Mark, the last verses, that sometimes people who are really far smarter than they should be, they ignore the eliminate, and then they eliminate this particular lesson. It's very valuable. We, who want to walk in faith, following after Jesus, should recognize the priority of living by faith is very important to God and should be important to us as well. So when we look on a passage of Scripture like this, it's so important to recognize uh, these three important elements that are part of the historical record of the resurrected Jesus. But also something really important is how the story ends is probably more important than anything else. The speaking is done. Jesus Christ's words are not featured here, but instead what is featured is that Jesus Christ's work or his life is now being received by the Father. He's taken up at the ascension, and he's at the right hand of God. No matter how bad the circumstances are, it's the ending. That's what's most important. And whoever wrote this emphasized the ending correctly with the right focus. It's not about the words that were said or the declarations that were made. The fact that Jesus Christ finished his work and the Father received it and accepted it as genuine. How the story ends, that's what's most important. There was a horrible collision in a very remote part of the highway system. And both cars, as they smacked into each other, it was horrendous, the collision. Both of the cars flipped over and rolled several times smashed them. It's obvious that the cars were completely total. But one of the most amazing things is 
Both drivers crawled out of their vehicles relatively unhurt. Nothing broken, no major damage to them, scratches and a few contusions. That was, amazingly enough, was all that happened. And one was a man, one was a woman, and they both got out and looked at their vehicles, and they were both shaking their heads and brushing off the dust and the broken glass. And the woman looked at the man and says, this, this is a miracle. Look at our cars. And we both crawled out of there virtually un, unhurt. I, I think this is a miracle that God wants us to meet and probably be lifelong friends. And the man's still a little bewildered and says, yeah, yeah, boy, I, I couldn't dispute that. And the woman looks around at her car and says, wow, here's a second miracle. And then she went in and says, everything in my car is destroyed, but boy, in the back seat, I've got a bottle of wine that I just picked up at the store, and it is unbroken, it's undamaged, look at this. I think it's clear that God wants us to celebrate this miracle of being alive and unhurt. And the man, still halfway bewildered, says, man, I, I couldn't disagree with you there. And so she hands him the bottle of wine. He uncorks the thing, and he guzzles half the bottle. He hands it back to her to enjoy the celebration, and she accepts the bottle and puts the cork back in and hands the bottle back to him. And he says, well, aren't you going to take a drink and celebrate? She says, no, I think I'll wait for the police. <laughs> It's how the story ends. And whoever wrote this in the Gospel of Mark, he got it right. And the work of Jesus Christ was accepted by the Father. And he was brought up into heaven because his work was done. And those who witnessed the ascension of Jesus Christ realized that now the Father was giving them a reason to be a witness and a testimony for him on behalf of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Enjoy your table talk, guys. It's been a great ride through the Gospel of Mark. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details... And to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.